All right. So uh, tonight's topic is sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. Sympathetic or even you could sometimes it's called vicarious joy. Um, this is the way joy shows up all over the place in the Buddhist teachings. It's it's a, taught as an absolute essential for freedom from suffering, um, freedom and you know complete liberation of the heart can't happen without robust joy. <laughs> so it's all over. And in the context of the um, Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes of the heart, which are familiar to us all these are these are heart states that uh, are taught in Buddhism uh, we can recognize the heart in its open openness the heart in its state of well-being um, these four are friendliness or loving kindness uh, compassion appreciative joy sympathetic vicarious joy and equanimity so in the context of the Brahma Viharas, um, joy shows up specifically as sympathetic joy or joy in the joy of others. So it's understood as the pleasure that comes from delighting in other people's well-being, pure joy, unaffected by self-interest. As our hearts can quiver in response to others' suffering, this is compassion, as our hearts can quiver in response to others' suffering, so too they can quiver with joy in response to others' good fortune. So we're going to be exploring joy tonight and specifically moving into this quality of sympathetic joy. The Pali word that we translate into English as sympathetic or appreciative joy is mudita. And interestingly, the, the root of the Pali word mudita means to have a sense of gladness in general. So, you know, when you think about when you have a sense of gladness, that is fundamental joy, any kind of joy from any source. Um, so I think that when the Buddha was teaching in the in the context of the Brahma Viharas for us to lean into sympathetic joy where we're celebrating other people's joy, I think there was an assumption that we had already cultivated our own joy through our own practices, through our own lives, and that we could expand it exponentially when we start to take in other people's joy. And part of the reason that I think this is that the Buddha called mudita, appreciative joy, he called it the mind deliverance of gladness. So if we've already got some joy in our life and then we learn, we practice and we learn how to really begin to um, empathize with and reverberate with the joy of others, we're really moving into a place where we can pretty much reliably always be nourished by joy. When and, ever, when and if that moment is called for the mind deliverance of gladness. So I wanna, as we begin this contemplation tonight, I want to um, bring in two proverbs, one from Germany and one from China. 
Well, the German proverb that I want to bring in is shared pain is half the pain. Shared joy is twice the joy. Just thinking about that, is that, is that true in your experience? Shared pain is half the pain. Shared joy is twice the joy. So when we're able to share our pain with an empathic other, it reduces. And we're, we're able to share our joy with an empathic other, it increases. Now, we already are holding our part of the joy, but they feel the joy with us, and it increases. So that's the German proverb. And then the Chinese proverb that I want to bring in here right at the beginning is, um, is this. If I keep a green bough in my heart, a singing bird will come. And we can think of the green bough. There's different ways to think of this proverb, but in this context, we can think of the green bough as practice as a choice that we're making consciously to lean or incline towards joy in general and appreciative joy specifically. Very often in life, there are these little choice points, mental choice points, like I can continue my story of resentment or I could drop it right now and just come into the present moment. And if we've made a decision, I'm going to practice inclining towards joy. Um, that that's the green bow. That's a that's an intention. We have this intention as a green bow, and in and in the case of mudita, we have set this intention, and then this singing bird of joy comes more into our lives. I want to invite you to think of a time when you felt happiness at the good fortune of another. Because these, these energies that the Buddha lifts up for us to, to study and deepen in, these are natural human energies. So see if you can recall a time when you felt happiness at the success or pleasure or good fortune of another. It could be a person or an animal. It could be as simple as a puppy with a wagging tail. This is the time of many graduations from free school through graduate school. Maybe you've known some, some young person to graduate and feel joy in that. So, but thinking of a time when you felt happiness at the good fortune of another and thinking of what those circumstances were. Recall and savor that feeling of delight. And then into this, I want to ask this question of you. And you may, you may not come up with an answer right away, but I just like to drop this question into this field. What would support you in feeling this kind of mutual support of joy more often? What, what would help?
So if you don't mind dropping some, some, if you have some thoughts, dropping those into the chat and I'll read them aloud. Question again, what would support you in feeling this kind of mutual supportive joy more often? And this is of interest to me because what are the proximate causes? What are the, what are the things we let go of and what are the things we move towards in the deliberate cultivation of joy? Less greed and grasping. Thank you. Loving kindness or metta in my morning meditation. Having an open heart. Connection. Quieting the judging mind. These are great, thank you. Opening my heart to joy, letting go of fear. Seeing the best in people. If I were more focused on noticing joy myself. Yes. Stepping outside of personal self. So this is great and you can continue to contemplate this because if we begin to kind of see what the path is, what are the proximate causes, what are the support, just realizing, hey, there's joyousness here. That's right. Yeah. Great, thank you. So this is a quote from Buddhist teacher Christina Feldman. In the traditional teachings of the boundless abodes, the divine abodes, uh, joy is primarily referred to as empathic, altruistic, or appreciative joy, as I was mentioning. It speaks of our capacity to celebrate, honor, and rejoice in the happiness and well-being of another. This is a significant aspect of the fabric of joy, tempering our tendencies to envy others, to compare ourselves to others in ways that we feel ourselves to be deprived or inadequate, and to come to know a selfless joy in the face of another's happiness. Then she says, yet for us to know this specific dimension of joy, it's essential for us to know the vastness of the landscape of joy. So it might be helpful to know that of the four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, appreciative joy is, considering, is considered the most difficult to practice, this celebrating another. And so a very significant proximate cause to being able to do that is to support our own joy. It comes back to this, I'm sorry, too often quoted um, metaphor of putting on your own oxygen mask first. Because um, I'm just apologizing because I know you've heard that 25 times. Um, but that's really what it is, it's that, is that are we cultivating our own joy? <laughs> because it's harder to celebrate the good fortune and success of another 
when we are feeling, you know, bare to the bone. It's harder. It's not impossible. And we nourish ourselves with joy. So I want to take us on our way to really looking more deeply at mudita. I want to take us um, in a little exploration of our own joy. And this is... Um, This is offered with the acute awareness that my mentor, James Barris, who this is his sangha, and he's brought me in as support, is a joy expert. So I'm, you know, this is, you know, my take. And I've read his book, Awakening Joy, probably 15 times. And I used to go to his Awakening Joy course over and over and over and over again like take it over and over and over again because i sang for it but i would go even to the classes where i wasn't singing um so i'm well versed in james's model and a lot of that is it will you'll hear that here too um and some of it might be just you know filtered through the eve lens i i have um I heard a, a funny thing recently and I was on retreat. Teacher Anushka Fernandapul said that she thinks that when Dharma teachers get up to teach, we're all just doing Dharma karaoke because basically we're just sharing these, these ideas through our own psyches and experience. So that said, joy. So joy as it's understood in Buddhism, like compassion, is grounded in both mindfulness and friendliness, mindfulness and metta. So mindfulness brings us into the present moment. So we're really here for whatever's happening and whatever's happening, we hold it in friendliness. So if whatever's happening is painful and it's held in mindfulness and friendliness, then that, then compassion will arise. If whatever's happening is lovely, like your plum tree outside on, you know, on the sidewalk is blooming. And it's met with mindfulness where we see it. We're not lost in thought. We don't walk by the plum tree without ever seeing it. We see it because we're present. So mindfulness is there. And this sense of kind of friendly acceptance, which is metta, is there. Then joy naturally arises, delight. Uh, this sense of appreciation or contentedness, gladness. Our hearts are gladdened. And that gladness isn't only wonderful for just itself in the moment. It has a couple of very significant positive impacts on us um, in the immediate moment and, and on our journey. So in the immediate moment, when when gladness arises because we're meeting something pleasant with mindfulness and friendliness when gladness arises we're refueled we're uplifted i i kind of think of joy as and i know this isn't a pretty metaphor but i kind of think of joy as like gas for the car like or water when you're parched it it replenishes us it allows us for resilience so that's the short-term benefit 
of joy. And then the long-term benefit of joy that's taught, as I said, over and over by the Buddha is that it frees the heart. Ultimately, it's, it's part of our path towards nirvana. It's part of our path toward freedom. So it has its roots. Mindfulness and friendliness are present. We meet something good and we're uplifted. So we're renewed and we're restored. So what supports our joy? Um, I'm going to mention and lead us through some very tiny practices so that you can have some sort of direct tangible, you know, so that this isn't just fully pedantic, but there's some direct tangible um, experience of, of these ideas. So some things that support our joy, and I'll come back to all of these. One is our capacity to know what we like and to enjoy things. Another is gratitude. Another is integrity. Another is mindfulness. And another is contentment. So all of these are things we can cultivate and we do cultivate here in, in these kinds of circles. And um, just naming them and knowing them um, and then um, seeing where we, where we would benefit from practice and then taking up that practice. So the first, our, our capacity to enjoy things. Um, we live in a culture that prioritizes busyness, productivity over joy. And so um, it takes some, some courage sometimes, or if not courage, maybe just willingness to add our, our joy or our self-care, our well-being, our happiness somewhere in our day just putting it in there. And so the two parts of this are knowing what we love and interacting with those things. And then also um, cultivating some curiosity and willingness to know more about what you love and bring those things more routinely in your life. Writer and poet Mark Nepo said, the key to knowing joy is being easily pleased. So what we love doesn't have to only be, you know, those rarefied, amazing vacation type of moments. You know, what we love could be split pea soup, you know, or it could be, um, you know, just sitting out on, when on a sunny day, sitting out on the deck for a few minutes our capacity to take active delight in things. So the, the quick reflection I wanna do with you here on this one is just to ask you these three questions. So, and it, whatever answer arises is 100% fine. It's just information that might help you decide if this is a place you wanna dig a little deeper. First question is, do you know what you love? What are some things you love?
second question, having maybe perhaps thought of a few things or one thing or two things, do you bring those things into your life? A lot of Americans don't. Like some of us, a lot of Americans know some things we love, but we barely ever do them or see them or So do you bring those things into your life? And maybe you do, and that's something you can celebrate and be glad about. And then this third question, can you cultivate curiosity and willingness to know more about what you love? To learn, <laughs> what do I love? curiosity about what you love and willingness to bring those things more routinely into your life. So that's our capacity to take active delight in things. Okay, second, gratitude. Um, gratitude is essentially an affirmation of the goodness that we perceive and it's interesting because our English word gratitude comes from the Latin word gratias which is also the root word for the English word grace so that initial observation that there's some kind of relationship between the good things and a sense of grace or a sense of awe of the miraculous. And that also relates to what I was saying before about how these things that bring us joy actually literally replenish us. This is a quote from Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg. If it works for you, say thank you. Thank you, little miracles. Thank you, little good things. Thank you, little moments of smiling, little instances of joy, little times of happiness. Say thank you and then take those experiences of gratitude and allow yourself to breathe them in, the gratefulness and the gratitude. And know that as we practice looking for the good moments, looking for what to be grateful for, it becomes a habit. We see what we're looking for. We shift our moods. We're more in our lives at that moment. So this is a quote I learned from, I heard from James. This comes from a um, Ziggy cartoon. We can notice that roses have thorns or we can notice that thorns have roses. Meaning, Life's got roses and thorns. Nobody's denying the thorns here, you know. What we're saying is we can notice that there are roses here, even in the midst of our challenges and difficulties. And we benefit from that kind of noticing. So with that in mind, the next little reflection I want to invite you in right now to take a few moments and think of three things you're grateful for.
And if you if you've got if you kind of notice your mind rolling with it, you can think of more. If you're sort of stuck, you could just thinking of one is fine. So this deliberately invoking gratitude is a really valuable practice that you can cultivate to increase your own joy. Okay, so that's gratitude. The third of these is integrity. The Buddha said, a deed is good that one doesn't regret having done that results in joy and delight. So there's basically two things here. It's it's really good when we do things that we don't regret. Regretting is awful. Awful. You know it. When you wake up in the night and you regret. Or I was on a retreat in February and I had a whole like several days of my mind producing all kinds of awful things that it regretted. It was very unpleasant. So there's that. And then there's also the next part of this quote, a deed is good that one doesn't regret having done that results in joy and delight. The opposite of that is that when we remember things we've done that we're glad we did, like, you know, that time when you, you know, fill in the blank, and we're glad we go, that was a good thing, and we know it. Notice what happens in the body. This is what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. So here's a little quickie reflection on integrity. Okay, so first of all, if you feel willing, recall something you've done that if you could have a do-over, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> if you could go back in time, you wouldn't do that thing. And how does that feel? Just noticing. Okay, now recall something you've done that you're glad you did, you feel good about. Could be really simple like holding a door for someone or, you know, whatever, just some something. And if it's hard to call that up right now because you don't have much practice in it, which many of us don't because we're not, many of us are not conditioned to think about our own beautiful, beautiful behaviors, then just trust that you've done lots of good things. And how does that feel? In your body. And maybe you get a little flavor or sense of the relationship between integrity and joy. So that's, that's the integrity piece. Okay. Two more. The next one is mindfulness, which is so foundational to our practices, you're well aware. 
What mindfulness does, among many other things, is that any moment that we're mindful, we're moving out of the process, out of the automatic storytelling brain, the default mode network, which is negatively biased, and, and it's creating, it remembers remembers past and imagines future and projects all kinds of worry. And it's really quite, uh, quite a piece of work. <laughs> it does serve us, but oh my gosh, it's, it's got, it's got its issues. So, um, so in some fact, I read somebody, uh, um, a therapist writer from Australia, um, calls the default mode network, the storytelling parts of our brain, brain, the automatic storytelling part of our brain, radio doom and gloom, which I think is a pretty good description. Anytime we practice mindfulness, we're dropping out of that and coming into the present moment. So mindfulness simultaneously brings us here where there might be something lovely to acknowledge and recognize like a blooming plum tree and is taking us out of a place that's quite negative and self-focused so what mindfulness helps us do as somebody mentioned when you were when you were putting in your thoughts about how to cultivate joy it helps us get out of ourselves and into the lived moment so there's different kinds of things that the that the storytelling mind, the the wandering mind produces, but a lot of it is this inner selfing stories. And one of the ways that it does that is with comparing mind, or in, what in in uh, Buddhist psychology is called conceit. In English, the word conceit means somebody thinks they're better than you or whatever, and that's part of it. But in Buddhist psychology, conceit is all the different ways we compare ourselves. So yeah, when we think we're better than someone else, yeah, that's conceit. And it hurts. But it's not the only part of conceit. Also, when we think we're inferior to others, that's interestingly considered a form of conceit um, in a different sort of understanding of the word because we're creating a self and it's and it's painful it hurts it doesn't feel good and the most curious of all in buddhist psychology is in the same umbrella of conceit or comparing mind is when we think we're the same as others that also weirdly hurts <laughs> and you don't have to take my word for it you can just explore this for yourself like like when i'm comparing myself to others regardless of where i rank in relationship to them how do i feel so the invitation is oh and before i say that let me say this this is a quote from the buddha in a battle the winners and the losers both lose and that's the teaching about comparing mind so the way that we work with this comparing mind is as soon as there's enough awareness to see that our mind is doing it it's a very natural thing to do there's a lot of hybrid energy for all of us humans around comparing mind so we probably will see it and when we do oh we can name it there's comparing mind i'm comparing myself to that i think that 
that person's better than me. I think I'm better than that person. I'm like calculating how I'm about equal to this other person. <laughs> you know, mine can go on and on with this stuff. And and when we see it happening, we can name it. Oh, comparing mind and drop into mindfulness. Just let the whole thing go. Be with this present moment, this body, this heart. Just change the channel entirely. Mindfulness really helps with joy. And I'm not going to do a little reflection on mindfulness because we did a whole half hour of it before we started, before I started talking. Okay, so one more um, contentment. Contentment. So to cultivate contentment, we need to deliberately challenge conditioning around insufficiency. Not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough. Insufficiency ideology. Someone calls, I didn't make that up, that's from either Christina Feldman or Sharon Salzberg. Insufficiency conditioning. Social activist gerrymander hypothesizes that media is deliberately designed to induce self-hatred, negative body image, and dejection with advertising drummed up and sold to offer the cure. So not just from the wider capitalistic culture, but from a whole bunch of other sources over decades, we take in insufficiency ideology and it leaves us with a sense of lack that's really painful. Then we feel like we have to hustle to be enough. And all of this is conditioning. When we drop out of the thinking, the storytelling mind again, and we drop into the present moment, we can look around and say, wait, are my needs met? <laughs> And there may be some needs that are not met, for sure, for sure. And there's different ways to take care of that. You know, um, in Buddhist practice, in the way we relate to ourselves, there are different ways we can take care of that. Self-compassion and self-care and asking ourselves, what do we need right now? And things like this. And also, a lot of this sense of insufficiency is just layered on with no regard to reality. And so we need to discern, to have wise discernment about that. I love this new acronym, J-O-M-O, -O, that's been going around. It's not really that new, but newer than F-O-M-O, which stands for fear of meeting out, fear of missing out. J-O-M-O -O stands for joy of missing out. <laughs> Digging, being simple <laughs> and spacious and not doing every single thing all the time. Contentment. So I want to leave you in a, with a little tiny contentment practice now.
This is in a wonderful book. Can you see this? I'll just tell you what it is. I don't know if you can see it. This is called Boundless Heart by Christina Feldman. It's wonderful. <clears throat> okay. Okay, so a little contentment practice. Taking some moments to be still, allowing your body and mind to settle into the moment. Feeling the life in your body. And listen to the life in your mind with its waves of thoughts and images. Notice the tone of the thoughts. It could be ease or discontentment or anything else. Bring a simple question into the quietude. What in this moment is lacking? What is being asked of me for contentment to be present? What is being asked of me for contentment to be present? Okay. So those are some, some of the ways and these, you know, you mentioned all of them in, in your sharing at the beginning of the talk tonight about how do we cultivate joy? These are some of the ways. And you can see that, you know, remember that, that proverb, if you keep a green bough in, if I keep a green bough in my heart, a singing bird will come. We take care of ourselves by noticing which practices here resonate for us and then really bringing them in as practice. Whether that's like, like really expanding on what it, in the, our list of the things we love and then bringing those in our life or practicing a, a deliberate gratitude practice, you know, working with integrity to feel that bliss of blamelessness or, um, contentment or I'm forgetting one, but anyway, the, a mindfulness, mindfulness or contentment really like, like if you felt some resonance with some of these, they work if you work them. We need to deliberately bring them into our lives so that our minds are like habituated towards looking for setting the intention, the green bow so that joy can be there. 
And once we feel resourced in this way, and often long before we feel resourced, but definitely by the time we feel resourced, then appreciative joy, mudita, becomes so much more accessible. We're not falling into comparing mind or self-judgment or this sense of not good enough, not enough. Um, then we really can celebrate more easily the joys of others. And some things that help us or that support or can be proximate causes to appreciative joy, one of them is compassion. Compassion recognizes that we all struggle. We all have challenges. And if we're not having them right now, we have and we will again in the future. And when compassion's on board, then when somebody is doing well, we can be really glad they're doing well. So glad. Because we know the truth of the situation of being a living being here is that there are joys and sorrows for us all. Nobody like lands on happiness and stays there. That's not how it is here. So if, if compassion is a part of our sort of our orientation, then actually interestingly, appreciative joy is more available too. And then generosity supports connection and joy it, it it appreciative joy like it really choosing to practice being present with connected with caring of supportive of others is is a way of expressing appreciative joy i, I just had a realization when i was talking to somebody about this recently that when we talk about compassion, we always talk about compassionate action. That's a part of compassion, you know, responsiveness. Well, when we're experiencing appreciative joy, generosity is very often part of the part of the responsiveness. It's a it's a way we can express our support of what's going on with this other being. And the opposite of generosity is stinginess and stinginess leads to isolation and barriers and we're conditioned towards stinginess, unfortunately, in our culture. So that's another one we have to swim upstream against, but we can do that and deliberately practice the connectivity of generosity. So all of these, you know, joy is a feeling and appreciative joy is a feeling, but much more broadly than a feeling, joy and appreciative joy are choices that we make. Like I said at the beginning, we come to these choice points. Do I want to continue with this old habit of, you know, fill in the blank? Or do I want to begin to lean towards or take a step towards a faith step, sometimes a courageous step towards practicing joy or appreciative joy? So I'm going to read you a little story about, which I have titled Mudita is a Choice. It's not the title. 
of the story in real life. It doesn't have a title. It's just a little story in this fabulous book <laughs> called Real Love by Sharon Salzberg. Okay, let's see. 189. All right. Georgia has known Dan since he first picked up the saxophone in high school. She remembers his slobbery bleats as he tried to get his mouth around the reed. And she also remembers how he put aside his rock and roll dreams when the girls didn't seem all that impressed. Then, when Dan was in his 30s, after the breakup of a long relationship, he picked up the saxophone again and managed to get into a band. Georgia, who's a longtime jazz fan with a discerning ear, thought Dan's playing was not very good and sometimes downright bad, but she went to his gigs anyway. Being on stage made Dan happy, especially when people in the audience danced, and she loved seeing the boyish joy he radiated after a show. I wanted to be there to see Dan fulfill his dream, Georgia told me with a grin. And when we're senior citizens, I'll be able to remind him how he got people dancing and we'll share it all again. This may seem like a small gesture, but Georgia was filling the space between them with love and generosity. If she had chosen to make jokes about Dan's dream or to give him advice about his playing or to compare his band to one she liked better, that space would start to fill in with judgment and perfectionism. Instead, Georgia took her own expertise out of the picture. She saw Dan clearly enough to know he needed a friend, not a coach. So you can see why I, I call that little story, Mudita is a choice. It's a choice. And it gladdens our own heart, as well as obviously the high. Remember that German proverb, uh, pain shared is cut in half and joy shared is doubled. So I, I want to um, lead us in a very short mudita practice, appreciative joy practice. Okay, so we want to, Buddhism teaches with these practices to start where it's easiest. And typically with mudita appreciative joy practice, it's easiest to start with someone you like, you know, a friend who is cheerful, a cheerful, good friend. Or somebody who's, you know, if you don't, if nobody instantly comes to mind with those monikers, then, you know, somebody who sort of is in that general vicinity of cheerful and friendly and, you know, doing okay. So just bring this person to mind or animal, could be an animal. and contemplate their cheerfulness 
with appreciation and let it fill you. So we're not looking for absolute perfect happiness in their life. Just whatever good fortune or happiness of theirs comes to mind. And name that, name that appreciation that you have for their good fortune with the phrase, may your happiness and good fortune not leave you. May your good fortune continue. Just tuning into your body a little bit here, noticing if there's any sort of emotional sense, and it's totally 100% fine if there isn't. This is a practice, not an emotion but it can be interesting information to tune into the body. May your good fortune continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.